Fred Kagan is Senior Fellow and Director of the Critical Threats Project at the American Enterprise Institute. He was a Professor of Military History at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point from 1995 to 2005. Fred joins us today to talk about the full range of national security issues facing the United States. We're having conversations about negotiations in the West that are extraordinarily naive, including naive about how negotiations actually work. Because if you want an adversary to make significant concessions, the adversary has to believe that he can't get what he wants by force. And we've told ourselves that Putin has already lost. Putin hasn't gotten that memo. We'll be right back after a break. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Fred, welcome. It is great to have you on Intelligence Matters. Mike, it's great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. So, Fred, I just want to start by asking you about the Critical Threats Project at the American Enterprise Institute, which you direct. What is the project? What do you guys do in it? So we are an open source intelligence organization at the American Enterprise Institute. I founded CTP in about 2009. And we use publicly available information and do our best to apply intelligence community type tradecraft and standards to it in order to inform the public, the media, policy community and make recommendations about policy for uh, American national interests. We have two analytical teams at uh, CTP. One focuses on Iran and increasingly Iran and its activities in the region, but the team has been very focused historically on Iranian internal matters, has been covering the daily the Iranian protest movement with daily updates. And the other team is the Salafi Jihadi team that looks at the Salafi Jihadi movement, particularly as it has been operating in Africa and uh, secondarily in Yemen, although we're finally managing to get our coverage back into the Middle East, particularly Iraq and Syria. So, Fred, you obviously don't know, you know, the information base that the intelligence community operates from on these issues, but... Um, how strong is the open source information that's out there, the publicly available information 
you know, how has that changed over time? Do you have what you need to make judgments? What's the quality of that information? Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Uh, so weirdly, I actually do have some understanding of what the base has been that the IC uses because um, I spent about 18 months in Afghanistan with General Petraeus and then General Allen. And I spent most of that time in the Joint Intelligence Operations Center there. So I got a pretty good view of what the IC work was on the kind of conflict that we follow. And I think that has helped me refine my understanding of what I think you can do from publicly available information and what you can do with exquisite intelligence. In general terms, if you want to build a baseline understanding of what's going on in the world in a conflict zone, I think publicly available information is the way to go. My general impression of the intelligence community, maybe this has changed, is that the exquisite intelligence tends to come through a lot of soda straws that are relatively confined, and it's, it is a challenge to take that highly sort of targeted soda straw information and build a general picture of what's going on from it. Whereas on the publicly available information side, there are lots of things that you just can't know that you really do need to know in order to make the kinds of decisions that our leaders actually have to be making. So my view is that you, the intelligence community and we, we all would do well to build our baseline understanding of what's going on in the world from publicly available information and then use the exquisite intelligence to answer the questions that you can only answer in that way and perform the functions that can only be performed in that way. And that's specifically things like targeting, right. like developing really actionable intelligence in a timely fashion and so on. Right. Fred, I want to talk about um, the many national security issues that are facing the United States today. But before we do that, I'm sure you know that we're fast approaching the 20th anniversary of the war in Iraq. And I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about the war. You wrote a report on Iraq in January 2007, I think, I think that was the date, that outlined a set of recommendations for the president. And my understanding that he was impressed with your report and actually helped guide his decision making into a set of decisions, right, that ultimately were successful in stabilizing the country. And what I want to ask is, why do you think the strategy in Iraq, the surge strategy in Iraq was successful and why a similar strategy in Afghanistan was not? That's a, it's a, it's a great question, obviously a very complicated one. Obviously, Afghanistan is not Iraq. Situations are, were different and the problems were somewhat different. The commonality was that in both cases, the US and its allies were facing an insurgency and we hadn't recognized that we were facing an insurgency and so we hadn't adopted a counterinsurgency right. strategy and then we hadn't resourced it. So the surges both in Iraq and Afghanistan were always, as you, as you know, less about force numbers and more about recognizing that it was an insurgency and adopting a counterinsurgency approach. I could make the very straightforward observation that whereas in Iraq, the surge was allowed almost all of the time and space that it was projected to require in order to achieve its effects before President Obama ordered the significant drawdowns. 
in Afghanistan, President Obama announced a timeline for the surge to end that was earlier than certainly I thought was appropriate or would be adequate. And in fact, while I was in theater, I observed the effects of that order, that there were areas of Afghanistan that needed to be cleared by surge forces that the ISAF couldn't clear because the surge had to be withdrawn per President Obama's orders before we could do that. So it was an incompleted effort as a in part, well, as a result of the president's decisions on timelines, but that's not a, that's not a sufficient answer. I think that we had a much more effective civil military or political military campaign plan and working relationship throughout the surge period uh, in Iraq, principally between General Petraeus and Ambassador Ryan Crocker. And we didn't have that in Afghanistan for many reasons. So we never, I don't think we ever really got a political approach in Afghanistan that aligned fully with the military approach for various reasons. And the political situation was very dicey. For all of that, I have to say that I think that by the time President Biden came to office, the situation in Afghanistan was relatively stable with a very low level of U.S. forces present, taking very, very few casualties. And I think that if President Biden had not ordered the hasty withdrawal of U.S. forces from Afghanistan, Taliban would not now be in power there and the country would not have collapsed. So I, I don't think that clearly the surge in Afghanistan did not succeed as well as the surge in Iraq for various reasons. But yeah, I also yeah. think that there was nothing inevitable about the outcome that we've had. Okay, Fred, let's move to today. And what I want to do is move through the hot spots in the world. And no surprise, I want to start with the war in Ukraine. Um, as you know, we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of the invasion, fully realizing, right, that, that this war really began in 2014, but the massive invasion from last February. And I want to begin with the most basic question, which I don't think gets discussed enough in the United States. Why does the outcome of this war matter to us? The outcome of the war matters to the U.S. and Europe profoundly. Putin is trying to establish the principle that it, basically Putin is trying to bring back into existence a Hobbesian world. It's a world, it's a war of all against all. It's a world in which the strong do what they wish and the weak submit to what they must. Sovereignty is defined by military power. And it's not a world that we have lived in for many, many decades. And it's not a world that we want to live in. And if Putin is allowed to establish this principle, then Xi Jinping is observing this and will be encouraged. The Iranians will be encouraged to do this. Any country that is more powerful than a neighbor with whom it has a grievance will be encouraged to decide to resolve its conflicts by force. That's a terrible world for us to live in, especially considering the proliferation of nuclear weapons. Which brings me to my next point. You could make the case that the only reason this war is occurring is because Ukraine gave up the Soviet nuclear arsenal or the part of the Soviet nuclear arsenal that it had inherited. It gave that up in 1994 right. at our insistence and in exchange for a commitment by us and the Russians to respect its boundaries. The fact that it gave up that arsenal and then the Russians have invaded says a lot of bad things to other countries that are pursuing or thinking about pursuing nuclear weapons. 
So from both of those perspectives, it's deeply concerning. There are others, but I'll, I'll stop there for now. From a strategic perspective, Fred, where are we in the war uh, today? What are the possible paths going forward? And what will determine which of those paths we end up on? So the Russians uh, began this war with uh, an illegal, unprovoked, unjustified massive invasion that failed disastrously and the Ukrainians obviously pushed them back and then were able to liberate large portions of their territory. The Ukrainians don't have defense industry of their own that is significant and have needed Western help. The West has stepped up for the most part, but Western hesitation to provide Ukraine with the uh, weapons and equipment that it needs in a timely fashion and at scale has now, I fear, cost the Ukrainians the opportunity to continue the counteroffensives that they had begun in the fall, as a result of which we're now looking at the Russian offensive operations in the east already underway and possibly gearing up for yet another major offensive operation, even as the Ukrainians seem to be trying to get ready for their own counteroffensive. This is unfortunate. I think that if we had provided Ukraine with the weapons that it needed in a more timely fashion, the Ukrainians probably could have continued their counteroffensive operations in the fall and over the winter and retained the initiative. Now the initiative is a bit of a jump ball. That having been said, Russia is not going to conquer Ukraine militarily. That's not going to happen. The Russians might gain more territory at a horrific cost, but they're not going to be conquering Ukraine. The Ukrainians are not going to surrender. I am pretty confident that the West is going to stand firm backing Ukraine. And I think the Ukrainians will regain a lot more territory over time. And we're, we're going to have to see. The coming weeks will be very telling because we'll see whether the Ukrainians are able to get off a counteroffensive or not and what the Russians actually do and what actually happens. Are the Russians capable of sustaining a counteroffensive for, for any significant period of time? Yes and no. The Russians are suffering from severe limitations in materiel. Their own Putin has not mobilized Russia fully for war. He hasn't mobilized Russian defense industry. International sanctions are badly hampering Russia's ability to mobilize its defense industry. They don't have enough tanks. They don't have enough equipment of all sorts to provide for the soldiers that they're mobilizing. They have a lot of manpower, but they're not able to give it modern equipment. They fired most of their stocks of precision weapons. They're trying to get stuff from Iran, but that's not going to be enough, I think, to give them to offset their other gaps. And in particular, they've been suffering from shortages of artillery shells, which is a problem for them because they've been relying on artillery to make gains. All of which having been said, though, Putin has reportedly has something like 325,000 troops in Ukraine now and another 150,000 training in Russia. These are very poor quality troops. They're generally demoralized, they're not skilled, but it's a lot of bodies. And I think with those bodies and Putin's continued will to fight, they can sustain these sort of World War I kind of mm. operations that make limited gains at horrific human cost. But I don't think that we're going to see huge operationally significant advances by the Russians because I just don't think that they have either the training or the equipment or the supplies to make those kinds of gains. What about the Ukrainian ability to conduct an offensive here? How capable are they? What more do they need? How far can they push? How, far, how much can they take back? So as a matter of policy, we don't collect on the Ukrainians. Uh, we don't collect on, on the U.S. or its allies. So 
I have I can I can't give you an estimate with the same kind of confidence that I have about the Russians. What's very clear is that the Ukrainians have the will to continue to fight. It seems pretty clear to me that the Ukrainians are still holding back forces in hopes of conducting an, another counteroffensive operation. Certainly they keep saying that they are. What I'm concerned about is the materiel. They've lost a lot of tanks, they've lost a lot of armored personnel carriers. We have only just committed to giving them Western tanks, having exhausted our supply of Soviet-era stuff. The Western tanks will take a while to arrive and so on. So I don't know, but I, I don't know what General Zaluzhny, the Ukrainian chief of staff, has in his back pocket. I hope it's something, and I hope that he will surprise the Russians and us with the counteroffensive soon. Fred, I want to shift gears here to another difficult issue, which is China. And I'd like to ask you how you would characterize the national security challenge that China poses to us. So China poses many national security challenges to us. We could spend the rest of the morning talking about this, as, as, as you know. Obviously, China poses an economic challenge based on piratical policies that it has been yes. pursuing. But in terms of pure national security issues, the most immediate threat is to Taiwan. And that has been preoccupying our defense establishment, rightly so. But I think that we run a risk of becoming too myopically focused on the problem of defending Taiwan against Taiwan, uh, Chinese invasion. I also think, by the way, that there's far too many comments I'm hearing of people saying very dispositively, the Chinese are going to invade Taiwan in two years. The Chinese right. are going to invade Taiwan. Right. I don't think it's helpful to be saying that candidly in, for many reasons. I don't actually assess it to be accurate. And I think that it, our challenge is to deter the Chinese from taking any such action. And I think that that's feasible. What, here's what I'm really worried about with, that, with the focus on that invasion threat. The Chinese, as I'm about to argue in a forthcoming paper that I've written with Dan Blumenthal, uh, my colleague at AEI, the Chinese are pursuing really three roads to regaining control of Taiwan. One is by uh, persuasion, using information operations. Another is by coercion, using various information operations, but also the, the overflights, sort of military pressures, yes. economic pressures, various yes. other things. And the last would be by compellence, by force. What I'm concerned about is that if we become myopically focused on deterring or defeating the Chinese attempt to secure Taiwan by force, deter stopping them from winning by coercion is not a lesser included task. Right. And we have to block all three of those roads. And I'm worried that we're too focused on only one of them, even if it's certainly one that we need to be focused on. That's a really important point, Fred. We're going to take a quick break, then we'll be right back with more of a discussion with Fred Kagan. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So I don't want to leave Ukraine and China, Fred, without mentioning the special relationship between Russia and China, between Xi and Putin, which is based, in my view, almost entirely on their joint desire to weaken the United States on the international stage. What I want to ask you, though, is a bit of a different question How do you think Russian history will judge Putin, and how do you think Chinese history will judge Xi? I couldn't resist asking the question. (laughs) No, that's fine. And I I can't resist quoting Kissinger's account of what Mao Zedong said when he asked uh, what he thought about the French Revolution. It's too soon to tell. Look, it's going to depend on whether Putin wins or loses this war. And we have been far too quick to decide that Putin has already lost. Mm. He hasn't. If he ends this phase of this war with the battle lines anywhere close to where they are right now, it will have been a significant, if extraordinarily costly, victory for Russia. And it will be portrayed as such. If we want Putin to lose, and I think it's very important that he does lose, then the Ukrainians are going to have to liberate a lot more of their territory and we're going to have to help them. So I actually think the jury's still out on that. And that's one of the reasons why Putin keeps fighting. And it's one of the reasons why he's not interested in negotiating on any serious terms right now because he still thinks he can win. And if I could just make this point really briefly, we're having conversations about negotiations in the West that are extraordinarily naive, including naive about how negotiations actually work. Because if you want an adversary to make significant concessions, the adversary has to believe that he can't get what he wants by force. And we've told ourselves that Putin has already lost. Putin hasn't gotten that memo. So more has to be done to make it clear to Putin that he has lost, that he can't win. If there's going to be any hope of getting him to the negotiating table on any basis that anybody should be willing to accept. But until we know what the outcome of this conflict is, it's, we're not, I'm not going to be able to answer the question about how Putin will be judged in, by Russians in Russian history. So this is an extraordinarily, Fred, this is an extraordinarily important point because I think most people think that Putin has already lost right, politically and strategically. And, and there's, there's no way that he can come out the other end looking any different. And I think the point you're making is extraordinarily important and needs to inform policy in the West. Well, thank you. I agree. I think it's, we need to see the world from Putin's perspective. I think there's a problem with getting too deeply into rational actor model explanations of things. From our perspective, Putin's already lost, right? I mean, if if a U.S. president had undertaken something like this and had this kind of outcome or this kind of situation, then it would would have been a defeat. But Putin has been in office for 20 years, now 22 years. He's been waging this war, as you noted, since 2014. Actually, he's been setting conditions for it even longer than that. He's taking a long view here. And the territory in Ukraine that he's occupied would leave Ukraine strategically vulnerable to future Russian attack and economically crippled. That would leave Russia in a much more advantageous position for a renewed attack in the future than it had at the start of this. In addition to which, Putin has identified, finally, the fundamental flaws in his military that led to all of the catastrophes that we've been observing. And he is allowing his professional military staff now to start fixing those problems, 
we should expect Russia to reemerge as a significant threat after this phase of the war dies down, and it will be a significant threat to Ukraine. So no, the outcome of this conflict is by no means determined yet. What about Xi? And I know you're going to say it's too early, but you know he's um, he's making economic policy choices that are not in the long-term interests of the country. He's rolled back economic reform. He's got very difficult challenges to deal with in terms of demographics and the debt overhang in his economy. He's you know in in, in terms of being being repressive, he risks dampening innovation both political and economic innovation. So he doesn't seem to be heading in the right direction here from what's in the long-term interest of China and just get you to react to that. I should caveat this by saying I'm not a China expert by any stretch of the imagination. So take all of this for what you will. Xi, I think, has made a fundamental bet. And the bet is that he can reassert a an almost Maoist level of personal dictatorship in China of the sort that hasn't been seen really since Mao. And I think that for me, the whole prism of how she will be seen has to focus on that bet that he's made with himself. If having done that and having uh, increasingly imposed one man rule back on a system that had been somewhat, I don't want to overstate this, but somewhat more oligarchic than that, if he wins major triumphs for China and brings the Chinese Communist Party to a new position of strength, then he may go down relatively well. But as you say, the trend lines don't look very good for those things to happen. And I think his the danger to his reputation comes from having made this bet to begin with that makes the stakes for him much higher in all of the activities that he's pursuing. His mishandling of the COVID uh, crisis is very significant and very telling. His reaction to his realization that he'd mishandled it is also very interesting. The chaotic backing away, chaotic and unplanned backing away from the zero COVID policy really raises some very interesting questions about what he thought was going on, right. what his theory of the case had been, and what people were telling him. So I think that the situation is quite fraught for him, honestly. I'm going to take you um, to North Korea quickly. The growth of North Korea's strategic weapons programs continues. Kim's focused on enhancing his arsenal of ballistic missiles, strategic nuclear weapons, and now even even tactical nuclear weapons. And I'm I'm wondering if you're more worried about this place than you know, you were five years ago, you know, these, these tactical nuclear weapons worry me in a way that I wasn't worried before because it suggests that he perhaps sees some need to use them, that he has some options here that perhaps we didn't think he had. Just get your reaction to, to how, how concerned you are. I am concerned, but I, I would just take a step back, Mike, and say... Look, if you think back to the whole discussions and policies that we had in the 1990s as the North Koreans were developing this program and we were debating various options, we chose an option that permitted this proliferation. We had a lot of explanations for ourselves ourselves at the time about why that was okay and why that was the better thing to do. It's really not clear to me over the long term that those were the best choices. 
And I think as we look at other proliferation scenarios around the world, we really need to consider the lessons that should be drawn here. Because if North Korea didn't have nuclear weapons right now, I wouldn't be very worried about North Korea. Right, right. It does. I am very worried about it. And I'm also worried about it as a potential proliferator in various other ways. And we have reason, we have plenty of evidence to think that they might or that they have, in fact, engaged in activities to assist other states with nuclear weapons programs. So I'm alarmed about this in many dimensions, but I think it really should inform our thinking about how comfortable we actually are with nuclear proliferation in general. Yeah, to your point about um, proliferation, North Korea has sold every other military technology that it ever developed. Exactly. So deep concern there. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. Stay with us. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. So great transition to Iran. This is one of the countries that uh, you noted that you follow closely in your critical threat projects. And I really want to ask two questions, Fred, about Iran. The first is, are we losing the battle? Have we lost the battle of preventing Iran from ultimately becoming a nuclear weapons state? Well, we haven't lost it in the sense that Iran is not yet a nuclear weapons state. We've lost it in the sense that I don't think that there is a way to prevent Iran from becoming a nuclear weapons state that doesn't involve a very significant military operation. And even that, I think, is would be dicey in its own right in many ways, and I'm not advocating it. But I, I, even that is questionable in its ability to stop them. So I think we're in a very, very bad situation. President Obama had developed a theory for how we were going to stop this from happening, which was the nuclear deal. I think it was a very flawed theory, but it was a theory, and we were pursuing it for many years. President Trump chose to withdraw from the deal. I thought that that was a mistake for various reasons. But he attempted then to develop an alternative strategy for containing Iran. President Biden, as far as I can tell, the only policy toward Iran that he has had was getting back into the nuclear deal. That policy has failed, and the administration seems to have recognized that it's failed. But I haven't heard from the administration any articulation of any alternative strategy for Iran, for the nuclear program, or anything else. And this is a matter of great concern to me, because it's it's okay to come in with an idea about what you want to do. It's good for an administration to do that. When you recognize, it's also good to recognize when it's not going to work. Great. But then you have to have a new idea. Yeah. And I don't, I don't see one out there, and I find that extremely alarming. They are getting very close to, to what we in the intelligence community 
used to talk about in terms of threshold, right? Having the pieces and being able to put them together very quickly. They're still not there, but they're getting very close to that. And once they're there, it's very difficult to roll that back. Yeah. And I think, you know, the part of the question is what there are a bunch of decisions, as as you know, that Khamenei will need to make. What kind of nuclear state does he want to be? Does he want to be a nuclear state with a bomb or two that he might be able to put in a Connex container on a ship and get into the port in Tel Aviv and like that? Because if he wants to do that, he could probably do that very quickly. My assessment of this has always been that that actually isn't what he wants that Iran doesn't want to become a nuclear state like North Korea. It wants to become a nuclear state like Israel. It wants to become a nuclear state like Pakistan because the enrichment infrastructure the Iranians have always been trying to build seems to me to have been designed to support a nuclear arsenal, not a nuclear bomb. Mm -hmm. And that can affect the Iranian calculation about how rapidly they move to what levels of breakout. However, On the other side of that, there's a risk calculation that they have to make about at what point they think that they are facing potential threat of some kind of activity that they would want to deter that might cause them to race to the lower threshold breakout. Bottom line is we're in a very, very bad place when fundamentally the decision rests with Khamenei about what kind of nuclear power he wants Iran to be rather than about whether Iran can be a nuclear power. And unfortunately, I do think that that's where we are right now. I think the other the other interesting point here is that he has been right firmly in charge and firmly making the decisions about this program. And I think you're absolutely right about the direction he wanted to go. But at some point, he leaves the scene, right? And we have <laughs> we have a new supreme leader, or we have a new, you know, political order in Iran. And there are debates in Iran about about what their nuclear weapons policy should be. So all of this could change dramatically when he leaves the scene. Yes. And one of the reasons why we started doing daily updates back in September was that he had a bad health scare that clearly persuaded a lot of senior people in the regime that he might, he was imminently dying. He didn't turn out to be, but has really kicked the succession question into high gear in Iran. And listen, the, here's one thing that I'm really pretty confident in assessing or rather forecasting. The next supreme leader, whenever that comes, and I suspect it will be sooner rather than later, the next supreme leader will probably have less ability to control the IRGC's desire for much more aggressive policy and strategy across the board than Khamenei did. Depending on who you think the next supreme leader is, he may not want to, but Khamenei will have been supreme leader for more than 30 years. His death will be an epochal event in Iran, There is no one on the scene in Iran who has anything remotely approaching his stature. And so the next Supreme Leader will be much more vulnerable to guard pressure if he tries to push back or having to demonstrate his pliability to the guard to get the guard on side if he's not already a guard pick. That, to me, is extremely alarming because for all of his many flaws, and we could spend days listing his flaws, Khamenei has been a relatively cautious and conservative figure who has reigned the guard in on many occasions. So I am very concerned that a succession in Iran is very likely to produce a situation in which Iranian foreign policy, military policy, and nuclear policy gets unleashed in a certain way that could be extremely destabilizing and could also have important and very worrisome implications for the Iranian nuclear program. Fred, how do you guys think about the most recent protests in Iran? (laughs) 
We think this protest movement is the most significant in the history of the Islamic Republic. It certainly has lasted longer than any other. It has strained the Iranian security forces. And although the protests have for the most part died down, they have done so on the Iranian people's terms. The protests were not crushed by the regime. That's not why they stopped. Neither did the regime make any concessions. On the contrary, the regime has been pushing ever harder in the direction of exacerbating the grievances that started these protests to begin with. Fundamentally, our assessment is the Iranian people became tired and found the normal economic imperatives that humans have that make it hard to continue protesting indefinitely. But people stopped protesting because they chose to stop protesting, not because they were compelled to or because they'd been persuaded. And more than that, we have been closely monitoring and observing the emergence of visible protest organizers online, some of whom we've been able to show actually are able to generate protest activity. All of those groups are still present and active. So this protest ended with a much more visible and highly organized anti-regime structure than we've ever seen before. So all of that, I think, bodes well for the renewal of anti-regime activity in the coming days, weeks, or months. And it bodes very ill for stability in the regime. As we just published in the update that you could find at, at criticalthreats.org, we think that there are some senior officials in the regime who understand this. People like former President uh, Rouhani, like parliamentary speaker uh, Khalibov, even like the Supreme National Security Committee uh, Secretary Ali Shamkhani, the latter of two of whom are, are unquestionably hardliners, but also relatively pragmatic. And they have been messaging that they are very concerned. They think that the regime has lost the people. We agree with that assessment. And they are clearly signaling that they think the policies that the regime is following are not going to win the people back. And we agree with that assessment. So I think that we are, are moving through an inflection here that could very well be bringing us into the beginning of the end of the Islamic Republic. I don't want to give you a, a timeline for that or tell you how that happens. But I think this is a very, very serious situation for the Islamic Republic. And I think that there's reason for some optimism that the days of this vicious regime may be beginning to draw to a close. Fred, we have um, we have literally one minute left here, and 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 I wanted to ask you about terrorism, but I'm going to ask you another question. I know you're very proud of your team, very proud of the people that you work with. You don't do this by yourself, and I wanted to give you an opportunity to say something about them. What you're hearing from me are the assessments that are based on the phenomenal work that our brilliant young analysts do every day at great sacrifice. Um, I love them. I am unbelievably proud of them. And it is such a privilege uh, to be able to engage with young Americans who are so committed to American interests and values and who are so brilliant and able to find ways of wringing these kinds of assessments and forecasts out of publicly available information on tiny teams with limited resources. I just I can't praise enough the teams at the Critical Threats Project and the Institute for the Study of War. Uh, with which we're partnered. I'm grateful to be able to work with them every day. Fred, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. Welcome. That was Fred Kagan. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. 
Intelligence Matters is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Reggie Bazile. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.